Hello, and welcome to Fishman Radio. I am your host, Sonny Rusano, the Director of Academics for Fishman. And today we are joined by Isabel Muir, the Director of Security Council. Isabel, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, Sonny. Thanks for having me on Fishman Radio. Uh, my name is Isabel Muir. Like Sunny said, I'm the director of the Security Council this year. Um, I have been with Fishman for eight years, both as a director and as a delegate when I was in high school. Um, what else? I'm based in St. Pete, Florida, um, and I'm a political organizer. Wow, thank you. We've got a lot of 727 representation here. I'm also from St. Petersburg, uh, but... All things aside, we should hop into the background guide. Uh, this year, the Security Council will be evaluating the responsibility to protect. And this is a pretty uh, substantive background guide. So, Isabel, uh, can we just start right off by you telling us what the R2P or the responsibility to protect is? Yeah, absolutely. So the responsibility to protect or R2P for short um, is a relatively new international norm. Um, and the basics of it are that if there are crimes against humanity, genocide, war crimes, any situation inside of a nation's border that is threatening the lives of civilians to a point where the government cannot intervene or the government is at fault, it is the responsibility of the international community to intervene in a way that will prevent further harm onto the people of that country. So its focus is really on the most vulnerable in a member state um, and how to protect them when they're being threatened. Uh, thank you, Isabel. So why was the R2P created in the first place? So the responsibility to protect was initially created, at least as a concept in the 90s. I think there were definitely portions of this norm that existed in the past. Um, I think even as far back as 1945 with it, the interventions into the Holocaust as late as they may have came. But there were a number of situations in the 1990s that caused great international concern for, again, those most vulnerable populations. So there were situations in Somalia, Rwanda, and Bosnia. Um, and the international community ultimately failed to protect those pe people that their government was not protecting. So when, I guess you could say the straw broke the camel's back, uh, was in Yugoslavia in 1999 during the ethnic cleansing of Kosovar Albanians in what is now some might call the country of Kosovo. Um, this led to NATO taking action into their own hands and over the course of three months conducting aerial campaigns against Serbian military positions. That situation is honestly looking back regarded as a blunder more than anything it wasn't well structured and there were not really any principles to how that should have been carried out and that led to the further development of the responsibility to protect which was more formalized in the 2005 world summit which we talk about in the guide yes and in the uh, 2005 world summit which was the largest gathering of leaders in history 
uh, they agreed unanimously on the outcome document of the 2005 World Summit. Included in this document, as you said, Isabel, is the responsibility to protect its concept and its application for the UN in the future. So can you kind of delve into the language that is uh, specifically about the uh, responsibility to protect in this document? Absolutely. Um, And if there's one section I'm going to zero in on there, it is paragraphs 138 and 139 in the guide. That's something that we spend a lot or in the um, agreement. It's something that we spend a lot of time talking about in the guide. Um, And the reason for that is because those two paragraphs are the reason why the responsibility to protect was unanimously accepted by the international community. Um, And the reason for that is pretty simple. It makes the responsibility to protect more difficult to be enacted, particularly what most countries were worried about, which was the military side of responsibility to protect. I think it's really important to recognize that the creation of this norm and this concept really isn't about the military. It can also be diplomatic, which should be the first stop to resolving any problem or preventing a problem from taking place. But, you know, any country is focused on self-interest. Their mind is absolutely going to go to protecting the sovereignty of their nation. And that leads to military thought. So, 138 and 139 of this world summit outline that for military action to be taken using responsibility to protect there it needs to be an adoption by the security council where the difficulty for this comes in is there are five permanent members that sit on the security council all five of which are regarded as the global powers of today I think if I'm being fair, three more than the other two, um, where self-interest really comes into play. Um, and that's that's why it's so difficult, um, is that there are interests in every part of our globalized world by those states. Yes. And to further that point, uh, we've seen in the past, since the adoption of the R2P, the uh, two members of the P5, namely the United Kingdom and France, actually... Uh, revoking their own sovereignty to allow the responsibility to protect to happen in their uh, borders in case anything should happen. Uh, We have not heard anything, and I would not hold my breath waiting for the other three to do that as well. And, you know, part of the reason why France and the UK did that was to try and get Russia, the United States, um, and China to do the same thing. I also would argue that it's another reason why there's been attempts at the expansion of the P5 as well um, by states like South Africa, India, uh, Brazil, and South Korea. It spreads the wealth of that power and would push those states to not focus on their self-interest as much, but that's another story. Definitely. And a whole nother podcast, really. So what are some cases today for the possible use of R2P? Yeah, I think there are a few. Um, I'd say some are probably beyond saving. You know, in the guide, we talk about Myanmar. 
there's obviously still immense problems happening there. Um, but the responsibility to protect existed years ago, um, as far back as 2017. Um, I think if we're looking at the modern day case, um, I think Ukraine is probably the thing that comes to everyone's mind. We talk about it in the guide. And I, I do think it's a no brainer. I think a lot of people are looking, you know, at the situation in Ukraine as it's just a war, um, which just is not the the opt word there. But I hope you know what I mean when I say that. Um, but, you know, there are reports of crimes against humanity, of war crimes being committed, particularly of civilians being targeted by the Russian military. Uh, and yet... The UN has not touched this issue, at least inside the walls of the Security Council. And again, the reason for that is the fact that Russia is a permanent member. If we look at a case like Syria, for example, which when we'll talk about that more when we get to failures. But, you know, even when there was a proxy war going on in Syria, the UN rejected the country's existence of sovereignty unanimously 15 to 0 to create a humanitarian corridor because of how horrific the situation was there that happening in ukraine is impossible because russia's direct interest is for ukraine to be completely toppled by their military Judging on how complex the global situation is, especially especially in Ukraine, what should delegates keep in mind when researching this international concept? Uh, because it's more so of a concept than an actual uh, situation in one physical location, because there are, as you said, multiple places where this can be enacted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the things to look into, um, I mean, definitely start with looking inward at your own country's policy. Since the responsibility to protect has, you know, been accepted as a norm, there has been some work by governments to take the principles of the responsibility to protect and to put it into their own legal frameworks in their countries that, you know, give them more of a substantial buy-in into the concept of R2P. I think that's one place to look. I think, you know, like I said, not all instances of R2P being used is military. So have you had officials that have worked in situations where there was a country that was degrading in terms of its democracy or its, you know, overall stability? Or maybe you were part of a peacekeeping force, your member state was. I think that's a thing to look into as well. Um as well as just public statements by representatives to the UN from your member state, it's important to consider, you know, where you stand on it um, and also how your country feels about international law generally. Is Are they a member of the International Criminal Court? Things like that. What, you know, conventions have they adopted? Rights of the child, things like that. You know, how much does your member state buy into the concept of interdependence. Something else to note on top of that is concerning uh, peaceful resolutions to uh, using the R2P, uh, not immediately going to the military involvement of it, is paragraphs 138 and 139 of the World Summit 
uh, outcome document actually state that uh, intervention by force is actually the last resort and should be only used when all other methods of resolution have been exhausted and have failed. So definitely something to keep in mind there. So now that we've talked about what delegates should keep in mind when researching, uh, there are definitely pitfalls in this uh, committee or in this topic, especially due to the uh, the P5 and the situation right now. So what can you explain some of the pitfalls that delegates might run into when researching and debating? Yeah, definitely. So I think, you know, there, first of all, I want to recognize that there are instances of success with R2P. And we can dive into that a little bit more. But a lot of those successes exist prior to 2011. Um, So I want to touch on that a little bit. In 2011, we saw the Arab Spring spread like wildfire across the Middle East and North Africa with citizens of those countries looking for democracy, for human rights. Um, And, you know, really only one country, Tunisia, came out of that. What we saw was a lot of devastation for countries, particularly Libya and Syria. And... In the past, when R2P has played out, and so far, again, we have to remember, this is a really young norm. It's a really young principle. Um, And in the past, it's only been used in the case of facilitating peace talks or strengthening democratic principles or elections or things like that. But the Security Council takes incredibly swift action in Libya. I, I would argue, unlike anything we've seen, a month goes by at the start of this conflict and Muammar Gaddafi has made himself very clear that he's going to annihilate the demonstrators that are against his regime. And the Security Council, for, right then and there, decides that they are going to create a no-fly no zone, that NATO is going to step in. One thing I do want to note is we see an abstention from a couple of member states, most notably Russia and China, kind of wanting to see how this is going to play out. Um, it doesn't really go as planned. I think the thing that everyone remembers when they think about Libya is that when the regime was overthrown and toppled by rebel forces, which were supported by NATO, Omar Gaddafi was dragged out into the street and killed grave miscarriage of justice as we would typically consider how justice goes and and should go. And, you know, that is what, you know, the reasoning for Russia and China now to reject R2P really stands on is, you know, not only was Muammar Gaddafi's killing completely completely unreasonable but also you know Libya has not been stable since then at all it is completely factioned off and so the situation in Syria begins and not only is it a proxy war where the U.S. has an interest where Syria has an or where Russia has an interest and a bunch of other competing forces as well including terrorist groups but Russia and China have a really great reason now 
as to why there should not be intervention and why RTP should be rejected in its entirety. And that argument has continued over time. This is how R2P really gets its name as a failure and as something that should not be embraced. I personally think that that is a little bit ridiculous, considering the fact that, you know, this this principle is really only 12 years old at this point. In its short tenure, we've seen the the failures of it and the reverberations of the failures, namely the uh, members of the P5 and of the Security Council as a whole at times uh, having reason not to support the R2P. Uh, are there any notable successes that we can point to to show that the R2P does have potential and should be used continually in the future? You know, notable is a really interesting word there because I would say that the successes of RTP have not been regarded as notable. And that might just be a branding and marketing problem on RTP's part. Um, that being said, there are instances where it has been successful. It is something that has immense potential. You know, we point out Kenya and Kyrgyzstan in the background guide and talk about their successes in Kyrgyzstan preventing ethnic cleansing, in Kenya working to stop election-related violence. There are absolutely other situations where if embraced in the last 10 years, it could have been, you know, really preventative in horrible atrocities. I think it's entirely possible to say that maybe the genocide in Myanmar would not have been as bad against the Rohingya. I don't think that's unreasonable at all. Thank you, Isabel, for that response. And if I may, uh, one piece of advice that I would give to the delegates researching and uh, kind of a, a word of caution is they when you are debating, researching, and eventually writing a resolution for uh, this topic, all delegates should keep on the forefront of their minds the idea of sovereignty. So very, very quickly, the idea of sovereignty is a um, basically that a nation has control over itself. So the borders of the United States, we have we have control over what happens in our borders, and no one can encroach on that. That's the idea of sovereignty. So the R2P has created a bit of controversy, at least brought it to the forefront, because if the Security Council authorizes force from the R2P, they are authorizing a military force to go into a nation that may or may not have been in the room when it was decided. Therefore, some nations might see that as a breach of their sovereignty. So this is a major point in the R2P, and this is a very large reason why some nations, some in the Security Council, some outside of it, do not adhere to the idea as strongly as other nations do. So keeping in mind that resolutions cannot encroach on sovereignty of others and that the R2P must be used in a way that doesn't outright give the Security Council the authority to just invade any nation when they see a threat. Because other nations might not uh, adhere to that or uh, think it be a, a wild encroachment on their own borders. And this is always the debate that comes around when we talk about international law. But for the parameters of the Security Council, this is especially important. Yeah, I think that point can 
really not be understated. And this goes back to, again, like looking internally at your own country's policies about what conventions they are a part of um, or how they've spoken about R2P in the past. Um, And in addition, I think, you know, on that point of sovereignty, remembering that R2P is not all about military intervention. It really, at its core, is about diplomacy that is utilized to protect those that are most vulnerable. And so I also think a part of this committee is about, you know, member states getting comfortable with asking the international community for help. And, you know, Kenya is a great example of that. You know, Kofi Annan, as Secretary General of the UN, was called in to work with the newly established Kenyan government to quell this post-election violence. And it worked. I mean, there have been some bumps in the road, don't get me wrong, but it stopped what could have been a true snowballing effect into massive violence in the country. And that wasn't because of peacekeepers or NATO troops or a no-fly zone. It was because just purely of democracy and strengthening election regulation. Um, I also want to take this moment to say that I think there is a conflation between R2P and the spreading of democracy. This is something we've heard from member states, something we've heard from just international diplomats generally. Um, The responsibility to protect is not about spreading democracy. And for some of you, your member states might feel that way. You know, don't listen to me, stay on policy. But I I do want to say, you know, that's really what it's about is protecting those that are most vulnerable um, and not about overhauling government systems. Of course, all very important uh, things to keep in mind. Uh, Just one more time. uh, Thank you, Isabel, for such uh, enlightening discussion. And to the delegates, uh, good luck. And we hope that this helped out. Uh, Any final words for the delegates, Isabel? You know, I look forward to seeing you all back at what might be my favorite hotel in the world um, and spending a really great weekend together in a very intellectual space, um, ultimately trying, I'm going to rhyme here and I'm sorry, to make the world a better place. That's, That's a great way to end it. Thank you again for listening and we are excited to see you.